One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello and welcome to Brian Moore's Full Contact in association with The Telegraph and QBE Business Insurance. I'm Brian Moore and joining me in the studio Tonight is uh, the former Lions, Harlequins um, and Headingley flanker, Peter Winterbottom. Good evening, Peter. Um, Coming up on the podcast, we'll be speaking with the former Stade Francais and Scotland fullback Hugo Southwell and the European rugby chairman, Simon Halliday. We have Lee Centurion's coach, Paul Cook, to go through the weekend's Challenge Cup action. And Alex Brune will be updating us on the Super League rugby from the weekend. Nigel Owens is back to answer all your rugby law questions after refereeing his 100th European match. And remember, every week you can join us live here on Facebook at 6pm. Just search for Telegraph Sport and you can listen to the whole show live via the Telegraph website. Remember, please subscribe to the podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. OK, on with the show. Uh, Wince, um, going to be interesting uh, to talk to you tonight because you are a twice tourist of New Zealand with the British and Irish Lions. Is that right, 83 and 93? Yeah, yeah. I Se- was, uh, how many tests did you play? Seven tests in total. Yeah, so that's all, f- all the, 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 the lot, wasn't it? Yeah. Or four and three? We had four in uh, 1983 and uh, and then obviously with yourself, uh, three in uh, yeah. 1993. Well, uh, we like to feature uh, some questions from uh, our listeners and we've got a couple here. Uh, we'll take this one first from Steve Roach. What experiences of the 93 tour and 83 uh, could you pass on as advice to this year's squad? Well, uh, well <laughs> it, it, it's uh, an extremely difficult place to tour, Barnish, as you know. Um, uh, you, you, you're, you're taking on the whole country. It's not just a, a team and yeah. uh, not just their rugby players. It is the whole country. And you've got to be very careful that, um, that you keep focused about what you're trying to do out there and rather than... Um, than be distracted by various um, articles and papers. They, mm-hmm. they will to- uh, totally analyse the, the, the squad mm-hmm. um, and they'll take it apart. And if you actually believe what they're saying, it's going to put you off. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so it's really a question of when you go there. It, it's um, sort of um, keeping everything very focused and... Um, my, my feeling is that that it's not the guys who make the test side that are, that are going to that are key to winning the test series. It's probably the guys in the backroom staff, mm-hmm. the uh, the players who don't have the chance to play in the test because yeah. um, players can become very divisive, especially if you're you know you, take an example that you're an international player 
Um, you've played for your country for years and years, and suddenly you're going on uh, uh, joining the Lions tour, and you don't get selected. Um, some players will take it in their stride and will do everything they can to help the test side win and help the tour party win. Yep. Some people will be divisive, and you know yeah. that if uh, if anybody um, at all becomes divisive, then it is a very dangerous thing. Yeah, I, I the the one the one lesson I think you can take as um, the template for New Zealand in particular is the intensity of everything. You know, in Australia. To a certain extent, lesser extent, but but even so, in in South Africa, you have huge other sports. You know, in in South Africa, you've got football. In Australia, you've got Aussie Rules. You've got uh, rugby league, which is their prime prime sport. And therefore, the newspapers and media will be full of those games, reports, and so on. And rugby union will get its place. But in New Zealand, it's rugby union. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? You you cannot get away from it. And it will um, be everywhere under every aspect of media. And now bearing in mind, you've got 24-hour media and you've got rolling news and you've got... Uh, there's a big... Um, there's a huge local radio um, franchise. There's lots of them in New Zealand that feature all sorts of programmes. So quite apart from... Uh, the fact that you'll know what's going on and everyone else will know what's going on. Whenever you switch any form of device on, the news is going to feature rugby and you specifically in a way that, that just does not happen in Australia and uh, South Africa. So it really is relentless and you've got to be very prepared for that because especially if you don't quite do as well as you might, you might do or should do, you're going to get it. Uh, and and you've just got to be prepared to slog it out because if you become distracted or become depressed by by some of the stuff that comes and it will come and it will be a lot of it, then you're you're going to be in trouble. So those are the those are the things I think you you, you can pass on. Um, we've got a question from Duncan Franklin. I think he's a Quinn actually. Yes, Quinn's prof. I, Duncan. Um, how can an early World Cup draw help nations plan ahead if a lot of the smaller nations don't know which group they'll be in yet. Well, we now do know. We were speculating last week on what might happen, and we do now know what the draw is. England have got a, a difficult pool um, in the sense that they've got both uh, they've got both France and um, and Argentina. Argentina yeah. um, and we'll probably have they might have Fiji or Samoa from one of the one of the groups. Um, but then again, I think the the Scots. That's a difficult group. And I think with England, the fact is that if they're worried, which I don't think they should be, France and Argentina should be even more worried um, because they're more in danger. But what about this question about the earliness of, you know, the, the early nature of the draw and saying it helps nations plan ahead? I can't. Well, I guess it it probably helps the uh, the major nation, tier one nations. But they know they're going. I mean, well, exactly, yeah. But um, I guess they can uh, plan um, their their hotels, and then and I guess they can they can make some plans. I mean, obviously, if you're uh, one of the the tier two nations um, who always get a raw deal, well, that's um, the point, isn't it? They always get a raw deal anyway. Yeah, they uh, have to go through the qualifying yes. uh, stages, and then suddenly um, they have to organise their tour. Yeah, um, I think it's um, it, it's it seems a, a little bit unfair to me. I mean, why they couldn't wait for another sort of at least six months and uh, until the the southern hemisphere season finishes, and yeah. then then make the draw. Yeah. Um, 
seems to be also sensible to me. Yeah, but well, I, I, I can't see it either, Duncan. I, I just don't, and in fact, I don't believe it, actually. I, I'm not with rugby, world rugby on this one at all. Um, so, we've done that one. Let's have a look at... Uh, the World Rugby actually did do something which was very useful uh, this time around. Uh, they extended the uh, residence qualification for non-domestic players from three to five years. Now, actually, I wouldn't have minded it being another year, actually, but uh, five years to me was a minimum. What do you think, Wint? Yeah, I totally agree. I think... Um... You know, I think it did. It used to be six years um, before what, it was what, cut to yeah, three. Yeah, before yeah, it was so, cut yes, to three. I, th- I think it, it might be more. Um, I don't quite understand what the thinking was to cut it to three, um, but uh, I think five is is probably about right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just, I just I also wonder whether because some people were saying, um, yeah, even five, you should have it cut to, uh, you should have it cut down uh, even further, so that someone has to get a passport now. Um, that's an interesting thing. I'm, I'm not necessarily against that. That would show commitment to, to the country. Well, I, th- I think I think it, it's really a question of you've got to make sure that people that that, that, that are playing for your country and and gaining a cap is not devalued by um, various guys who can come over here and uh, and have options to play and have had options to play on a residency rule. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously Ben Teo is one that could have played for Ireland uh, and decided to play for England. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not, look, I'm not uh, having a go at Ben because it's not his decision. Um, mm. But I agree, I totally agree that, uh, you know, five years minimum, six probably would have been better. I'll tell you what, the, the, the one caveat that I would entertain is, and this would help Tier 2 nations, if you had an exception for players who... Um, had been brought up in Tier 1 nations and wanted to play for Tier 2 nations. Um, and you might have a, a period which was less for them on the basis that, well, you'd still have the problem of them replacing someone who's indigenous, which is not necessarily good. But then again, they're likely to be of better quality if they're from a Tier 1 nation and maybe help that Tier 2 nation's progress. So... You could look at that for me, but that would be the only exception. Yeah, but I, I agree with that. Yeah. I mean, why not? I mean, yeah. the Tier 2 countries need all the help they can get. They do, yes. Um, they don't get a lot from the uh, World Rugby, do they? No, they don't get a lot. When the tournament starts, they, they don't get anything yeah. either. I, I'm still a firm advocate of of them having a plate competition so that within the umbrella of the big uh, tournament, they could actually you know win something themselves, which would be a significant thing for them and their sponsors. I mean, it's a well-known... Except it's a well-known format in uh, in sevens. Um, it means a lot to these smaller mm. countries in sevens. They do celebrate it, and I think it'd be a, a tremendous thing. It would it would fill the midweek gaps, um, which start when you have the knockout stages, because you have to have seven days between games for sides to rest. It would be meaningful. I, I think it would pay for itself as well in the end. You would, because extra tickets are available for people to see World Cup games. One of the problems with the World Cup in England where there just weren't enough tickets to satisfy everybody and had there been a plate competition, you know, you'd have had some very good games, actually. Well, it would have, and, and uh, well, there would have been very good games and, yeah. as you say, it would have helped uh, help sponsorship as well. Yeah, because... England might have won something then as well. <laughs> well, that, that could have been the case. Actually, the way they played, probably not. <laughs> Scotland as well, yeah, maybe, no. Uh, OK, the weekend was obviously a big weekend, uh, European-wise, 
on Friday night, Gloucester uh, went down. They went down valiantly, uh, 17 points to 25 against Stade Francais, and we'll be speaking to the former Stade Francais fullback Hugo Southwell very shortly. And uh, Saracens, 28, Clement Auvergne, 17 now. Just start with uh, with Gloucester. They were... It was a brave effort, but they just came unstuck in the end at the set-piece. And uh, in the end, the forwards got hold of them and Sergio Parisi, who is just a magnificent player anyway. Uh, they finally got over the line. So I think Gloucester wouldn't uh, complain that they had... Uh, you know, been hard done to. I think they gave it everything they could. They were just uh, outgunned by a better side on the day. Um, Clement Auvergne Saracens. It, it was a well, eleven point gap, but and I know it was close before the last ten minutes. But when I looked at the game and I looked at it again when I replayed it, I didn't think the Saracens were in much trouble throughout that game. No, no. There was a period when Claremont came back into the game and. Um... And scored a you know a fantastic try from virtually their own line, but realistically, as you say, Saracens they probably dominated the game. They they never looked really in in too much trouble. I mean, there was a it was a classic Saracens display. They're so so organised. They don't uh, give anything away. Their yeah. defence is superb, and um, and yeah, and I, and I thought some of the uh, inventive play. I thought f- from Farrell, from from Good at fullback. Um, some of the play, uh, I thought... Can you... Just let's get on to good. I mean, neither of us are fullbacks. I'll ask Hugo Southwell this, because he was one. But he seems to be... I don't know how far down Eddie Jones' pecking order he is, but he's not going... I don't think he's going to to uh, Argentina. No. Which suggests he's three or four or, or even lower. I just can't see that, because every time he plays, you know, certainly attacking-wise, he, he, you know, he's just exemplary yeah. in terms of... Not only making ground, but his intelligent use of the boot and the way that he combines with his back three. And he has two good wingers, let's face it, to help him. But, uh, you know, he's, he's again top drawn. I, I, I just can't understand why he's not, you know, in, in, in or around the, the, the squad. I, I, I'm staggered, really. I mean, he, you know, the thing about him, he's a good footballer. Yes. He's got great hands, he's got a good kick. Um, okay, he's not maybe the most physical player, but he he creates things. I mean, he created that that try for Ashton. Yeah, super kick. You know, I mean, it, 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 he made it look simple, but you and I know that it was not a simple thing to do. Well, it was. He, it was moving at. He was moving at full speed when he took the when he took the pass from which within two or three strides he set himself enough to make a precision kick, which had then had the look of the bounce, but 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 it was beautifully positioned and beautifully yeah. weighted. Yeah. Uh, and that you know that's not inconsiderable. So, so you were talking about the, your Clement got a, a breakout try, but let's face it, what they've done to other teams, especially their back three, who are very very good, um, they've ripped to the sides to, apart, and they they just never look like getting out of of this stranglehold. Where Saracens, they they I think looked at the stats and they had sixty percent possession, but they had nearly seventy percent. Territory, which mm. means you know seven out of every you know, tenths was played in the opposition half, and that's where they did something to Claremont, which no other side's got near doing mm. in the games before. Yeah, well, you can see why Claremont can rip rip teams apart because they've got a solid front five, yeah, and a, a you know dynamic back row, and 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 outside that, you know, great halfbacks yep. and a back three that uh, you know will score from anywhere. Yeah. 
And I mean, you can see, and it's it's. I mean, God, it's it's all credit to to Saracens the way they play and the way they yeah. planned it, and and um, um, you know, because they they didn't give uh, Claremont anything. No, and and you know that Claremont back row, you give them oh, space. That, and I thought, off. I thought Lee, I thought was absolutely outstanding in the game, yeah. and he had the misfortune to come up against Billy Vinopola, who was just outstanding, plus well, a little bit extra because he was on the front foot a little bit. More often, but normally, the sort of performance that Lee put in would have been enough to carry his side, you know, well, well over the finish line. Uh, yeah, but I suppose we, maybe we do, we forget that Saracens have got five British Lions in the forward pack, and yep. people like uh, Jackson Ray, who I do not know why he why he's not on the England tour. Yeah. Um, you know, and then they bring on Scout Berger and uh, then Michael Rhodes on the side. I mean, there's some fantastic Jim Hamilton, players. who actually Jim Hamilton is. Can I just say, uh, Jim, if you are listening and you've been uh, a co-host on here and a very good one, uh, you've announced your retirement. Congratulations on your contribution to rugby, which has been exemplary over many years, especially the time that you spelt the, the Scottish call face when you were carrying the forwards, were carrying Scotland's efforts, only to find that the backs couldn't even you know, walk the ball over the line from two metres, uh, which must have been very trying for you. But you've had a, a great career, and uh, let's hope that uh, retirement goes well for you. But when you've got people like that, you know, he comes on uh, and um, Duncan Taylor comes on, You've got really good quality players, and and they don't miss a, a skip. You know they're not the fact that Brad Barrett, who had one of his best games for a long time uh, yesterday, um, went off. Uh, Taylor came on, no change in efficiency at all. No, but uh, Taylor, I mean, it really is a quality player. I yeah. mean, Brad Barrett had a great game, didn't he? You know, yeah. he takes the ball up. He's strong. He he, he the, the ball always comes back quickly from Brad. Never yeah. gets stuck. Yeah. Um, and obviously, unfortunately, when he went off, you bring on Duncan Taylor, who is, you know, an ex- got, not just got experience, but he's he's fast and mm-hmm. he fits into the pattern. Mm-hmm. And 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 really, Saracens are they're losing their their captain and their one of their better players. But yeah, it doesn't make any difference. You know, and you look at players like um, like Wiles. To me, you know, he's a fantastic. He's not particularly big for a for a winger. He's not absolutely outstandingly quick, but he's very clever. He's a he's a the the word is the right way. He's a footballer, all all round footballer, in the way that Elliot Daly and the way that Good is, and you you see him and he makes the best of everything that comes his way. Absolutely, and he is a, sort of typifies Sarri's, uh, yeah, you know the, the the whole way they look at the game. Yeah, I mean you know they sometimes they they they're not flash, they yeah. they they can be a, a little bit sort of pedantic, but but. But they don't make mistakes. They don't give anything away. Yep. And when they get a chance, they take it. And, and, and people f- like Wiles, I mean, he, you know, he's got such a good record with Sarri. Yeah. Uh, and, and would you say he's a, he's a sort of outstanding, great flair player? Well, he's not. But what he does is absolutely spot on. Yeah, he's very, yeah, he's very, very effective. Very effective. Very, I hate the word clinical, but very accurate in everything he does. And going going forward, I mean, the people are talking about. Uh, dynasties now, there's no accepted definition of what a dynasty is, but I think it's winning several, uh, you know, tournaments, especially if you can win them successively. Um, Saracens are not yet near the Leicesters and the Wasps of the professional era, nor the Baths of the non-professional era, and, and probably no one will get near near them. But given the demographic in their squad, how how many more seasons can you see this 
this sort of uh, dominance continuing for? Well, I think if they can hold on to their coaches, Mark McCall and um, and Alex Anderson, mm-hmm. I don't see why they can't keep going for a long time. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it, obviously everybody everybody's kept trying to catch up, and everybody's mm-hmm. trying to you know because they're set they're setting the benchmark. Mm-hmm. Um, so they have to keep improving, mm-hmm. um, but you know they probably will. I mean, you, you know, he, he, I guess. You know, we might be sitting here in 10 years' time and they're still a dominant force and Mario mm-hmm. Toggi has got 100-odd 100 100 caps and yeah. Captain England to winning a few World Cups. I mean, they... Yeah, the knighthood, you know, probably. Uh, probably, yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Wins, but I can't let people go. Before you, because you're on camera and uh, you're extravagantly dressed, uh, certainly in relation to me, but can you explain what... Uh, what the, uh, the the ride of the legends or lines? Well, with the, well, this uh, this shirt actually is the one that we we ride down to um, Gibraltar <laughs> each year. We're doing uh, we're doing the London Gibraltar, the Clock to the Rock in uh, September, which is a couple two week ride. Although it's over two stages, mm-hmm. and we're raising money for uh, prostate cancer and um, breast cancer mm-hmm. on that ride. But we're also doing a ride, the ride of the legends in uh, New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Uh, between the second and third tests, Lions legends. I know you can't necessarily uh, well, call it Lions. I, mean, well, I don't think we're allowed problems, to, but we're not allowed to say Lions. <laughs> but we're, yeah, that's um, ridiculous. There will be a number of. Uh, there'll be right. five All Blacks. There's, I mean, the All Black side is Ian Jones, Buck Shelford, um, Bernie McCarhill, um, Ian, oh. Ian Kirkpatrick, actually, who was. I didn't. His, I didn't know they were doing. I didn't know they were. They, they were yeah. doing it. Well, that well, Bangor's uh, allegedly right then, doesn't it? What do you think? You think it'll be competitive? Oh God! Can you imagine? They're, they're bound to be. They, they just, they're not able to do things by halves. Well, you know no, that. But then you know we do have Roger Utley, and he doesn't do things by That's halves. True. So That's uh, true. although uh, Shane Burns joining us um, oh, well. <laughs> on the trip, and I'm not sure what he's like on the bike, but we're hoping that he might. Uh, it might be in the bar area that he excels, Absolutely. and that so, might be our. Little so what? Is, what is that then? That you're riding where to where? And yeah, we're going. We're riding from um, Wellington to Auckland between mm-hmm. the second and third tests. Mm-hmm. Um, the British side of the ride uh, is ra- raising money for Wooden Spoon and Walking with the Wounded. Right. And the New Zealand side is wo- is for a charity called a New Zealand charity, Conductive Education. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, um, it's uh, it's going to be a fun do. We, we're going to be having function charity functions at each stop. All right. Um, along the way, so it's it's a five five day ride. And what um, about the website? Um, the premium the website for people to go to. Yeah, I mean, we we, we still have um, a small. I think about two or three spaces left. If right. people actually wanted to take uh, take part in the oh, right. in the ride, um, and I think actually a couple have decided to just come along for the ride and not actually pedal. <laughs> so they're in the uh, they're coming along for the beer. Who's that? Um, well. Peter Fanning, do you remember? Oh Peter yeah, Peter Fanning. Fanning, all right, yeah, all right. I, be- I believe he's doing. Yeah. He's coming along for the beer, all right. which um, I hopefully he won't get on bicycle. No, right. um, yeah, but it's a great way. It'll be a great way to. Okay, so just to, how just uh, how can people uh, access you know information? What what's the what's well? The... It, it would be if, if for the clock to the rock, you you can go to the website theclocktothewalk.co.uk, and okay. the ride of the legends. Yeah. Um, you have to go to the uh, Ride of the Lions website, right. which is .co.uk. But okay. it will take you to the Legends. All it right. will take you to the Legends ride, yeah. In association with QBE Business Insurance, principal partner of the British and Irish Lions. Time now to speak to the former Stade Francais and Scotland fullback and a regular contributor to Full Contact, Hugo Southwell. Hugo, good evening. Good evening, Brian. 
Uh, now then, um, as a former um, Stade Francais player, you must have been pleased at the result on Friday. Do you think they were uh, deserving winners? Yeah, I think they were deserving winners. And I think the most impressive thing for me, I mean, I do a lot of stuff on the top 14 on Sky and the improvement of Stade Francais since the collapse of the merger has been unbelievable. Why, I mean, has, you, why has that been then? I, I mean, we, Stade Francais have always had, you know, they've, they've, they've got some standout players. They've got players that uh, on the big occasion or when they're really pushed to the limit mentally, and this shouldn't be the case, but I think it has been over a number of years, mm-hmm. that when they are pushed to the limit, um, and something is, you know, going on behind the scenes. They seem to lift their game, and the game has. I mean, that, that ever since that merger merger collapsed, it is a r- remarkable run of form that they've gone through to to almost get themselves into the barrage in the top fourteen from being intense for most of the season, and then obviously to come through through this run and and put in a performance like they did at the weekend after so many near misses. Mm-hmm. And that's what was so important. You know, you look at Claremont in the game on Saturday, uh, the day after, and. You know, they've had a lot of near misses, but couldn't pull it off against a brilliant Saracen side. But Stade Francais, I thought they were, uh, you know, pretty dominant to be to be honest, and, yeah. and fully deserved the result. I, I think I, it seemed to me that I mean Gloucester uh, did put their all, and you can't fault them for effort and so on, and they they kept it close, especially in the first half. But in the end, I think it's just that they they're not as good a team. That the individuals don't stack up man for man. Uh, and there's no there's no disgrace in that, but I think in the end, provided Stad played to their fullest potential and Gloucester to theirs, th- that was probably going to be always be the sort of result that was going to going to occur. Yeah, I think the frustrating thing for Gloucester is they didn't play to anywhere near the level they can do, and I think that's been the story of their season. They've had some brilliant results, but they've been mm. far too inconsistent. Mm. Stad have been peaking to a level. Uh, at the right time, and the, and the top, the star players. You talk about Parise, you talk about Will Genny. I thought Will Genny had a great game. Yeah. Um, you look at uh, you know Dumeru, who that try was just out of nothing, sort of brilliant individual try. Mm-hmm. That was the difference. At moments when they needed someone to step up, they, they had exactly that. And mm-hmm. add that to, I think in the first half, even when they went ten 0 down, they were dominant. They were dominant uh, on the gain line. They were they were getting over the gain line every single time. Their offloading game was working. It just was that last pass, as we saw for Johnny May's interception. Mm-hmm. But throughout the game, for me, I didn't ever feel that Gloucester had control of it. And Stad did. And they, they looked like they were dangerous and could have scored at any opportunity. So, going forward, can we um, expect Stad to become a major player within the top 14 and, and, and Europe in the bigger competitions? Or are they still going to you know, have difficulties? Well, no, I, first and foremost, as you heard, I think Gonzalo Casada last night saying, or on Friday night, saying they're still, you know, without a, without a buyer. And Thomas Savare, who's, who's the owner or his current owner at the moment, has, has said that, uh, you know, as of three months' time, he will be pretty much stepping aside. So yeah. they need to get that sorted off, 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 off the pitch first. I think they won the top 14 uh, a couple of seasons back, and it was sort of a bit out of, it, was, it wasn't a Leicester City, but it was, you know, no one really expected Stade Francais. They had languished for four seasons, sort of at the bottom half of, of the table. And, and I think that gave them a sort of full sense of where they were. They're not quite there yet, but mm-hmm. you saw over the last few weeks, you saw on Friday in the final of the side that they can become. And mm-hmm. if they keep together the core of their squad, there's a lot of guys leaving because of the uncertainties that have been going on. You know, Rabba Slimani, big names, Hugo Bonneval, they're all leaving. Yeah. So that's quite key to their progress. But if they can get the consistency of players there and guys that they can retain, then there's no doubt they can push on to, to, to be a top side again. Well, one of the top sides, um, 
And I tell you what, it must be heartbreaking being a Claremont Auvergne fan, especially when it comes to finals. Um, again, didn't manage to to do it. You've got to feel sorry for people like uh, I think Benjamin Kezir has had five finals and five losses. Um, but in the end, you'd have to be hard-hearted not to have sympathy for them. But they didn't deserve to win, did they? They did not deserve to win. I, mean, I was there yesterday, and uh, you know, first and foremost, what a brilliant game. What a brilliant advert for, for European rugby. I mean, uh, Murrayfield, despite not being completely full, was the French fans just made, just lifted the whole occasion. And it was some atmosphere at Murrayfield. And I have to say, they got back into it at 18-17. But again, we've all seen it from Saracens. We know that when they're put under pressure in those situations, in the amount of finals they've been to, they produce the goods. And that's exactly what they did. The big guys, again... Like with Stade Francais, stood up, you know, the likes of Atoya, the likes of Farrell, Billy Vinopola, he's on fire at the moment, the guy. And, uh, you know, if he can continue that form going on to the Lions tour, he, he, is a, he is a proper wrecking ball. And, you know, he's a great, he's a great addition to any side. Having played with him at Wasp, I knew he could do that, but he just got better and better. And I, I just think Saracens are a team, uh, you know, I heard you speaking about it beforehand, and uh, Saracens are a team that are there for the long haul. Yeah, I, because I think if you came across uh, the, the final. Uh, absent of any watching any rugby be, that, that went before it in this competition, you might think that Claremont weren't that good a side, really, and were a bit limited, when in fact, you know, they've been cutting people to pieces and their their backs, especially even without Fafana, which they've coped with magnificently well. Um, but they, the way that they have have torn people, you know, uh, you know uh, to pieces was just not apparent because Saracens managed to keep them corralled for most of the game. Yeah, and, and I think we saw glimpses of it. I mean, there were times where they attacked from deep and you were thinking, you know, this is just brilliant. Because sometimes two teams at that level who, are, who, who sort of know each other pretty well tend to nullify each other in a big final. It, it can get quite, quite dull in, in a way, but that wasn't the case yesterday. We saw bits of it from Claremont. But it wasn't the performance that we've seen. That it's sort of, you know, sixty minutes, eighty minutes um, of what they needed against the Saracens side. You have to be. Saracens are always in the game. They're never ever going to be out of a game. You know, with the with the, with the quality in the squad they've got, guys coming off the bench. Mm. It's just brilliant to watch. And I, I think, you know, even when, as I say, they came back into it, I never felt that Saracens would lose it. And that is a sort of aura, that they, and that and it shone through in their players as well. They built that thing where even if people come back against us, we will still win this. Um, and it's pretty scary. Hugo, were you, were you surprised, actually, in the, the dominance of Saracens? I mean, were you, were you surprised that they would deal with uh, Claremont the way they did? Or did you expect uh, more from Claremont? I expected Saracens to win. I have to say, I was, I was doing some, some stuff work yesterday, and I, I said right from the start, you know, I expect them to win by seven or eight points. In fact, you know, it was pretty much like that. But what... I was surprised by their early dominance. The ball, the speed of ball they were getting and the, and the accuracy they were getting early on, the only thing that wasn't happening is they're coming away with as many points they probably yeah. um, would have done them more justice. But yeah. the only thing we all know with with rugby, momentum changes uh, the game pretty quickly. And that try for Claremont, um, they needed it at that time in the second half. Yeah. And, you know, you suddenly thought, hold on a minute, they've got a bit of a sniff. But Saracens just completely nullified again as they just lifted their game when they need to do it. They are so good at it. And uh, when I was at Wasps the other week before where they put out a slightly weakened team, that's probably the worst I've seen Saracens play, even with a, a sort of second-string side as much um, the week before. But they were back to their best yesterday. And defensively, they're outstanding. Their attacking game has come on 
I mean, Mark McCall's got to be given such credit for that because initially a very much a kick out their own half and then turn defence into attack. They, they have the all-round game now. They can play in, you know, wind, rain, or if it's a, it's a beautiful sunny day. And that's why I think they're just they're there for the long haul. Well, it came across uh, the atmosphere. Was it li- live? Was it was it as good as it, 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 it came across? Yeah, I mean, I've been obviously I've been uh, at numerous. Uh, pretty un- unbelievable occasions at Murrayfield with you know, England, Scotland. You know, it's always a brilliant atmosphere, and, and likewise with you guys, you've been there. But uh, for me, a club rugby game, I've never heard anything like it. And that, that's when the stadium wasn't even full. And you've got to give credit to Claremont fans for that. They are used to twenty-five thousand um, at their stadium on top of the ground. They created an atmosphere as if there was about eighty or ninety thousand of them, and that obviously lifted the Saracens fans and and the, and the general crowd. So yeah. a brilliant day and. Uh, yeah, the right team won. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Uh, great as usual, Hugo. Um, speak to you again soon. Yeah, thanks, Brian. Thanks, Peter. Cheers. Cheers. Right, time to talk to the man who was in charge of that game, who had, uh, well, he had special boots on. Um, perhaps he'd like to tell us about those, Nigel. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, how are you? I'm all right. Where do you get those from? Um, no, I very kindly gave my, my boots and stuff off, off Under Armour, so, uh, you know, they were very kind. They sent me a, a pair... Um, I get that uh, plug in. <laughs> they yeah. sent me a pair with them. Um, they did it for last year's final, actually, and they did it for the World Cup final as well. And uh, yeah. it's just a little bit something nice to the boots then as a memento, you know. And um, it's a little Welsh flag in it and the 100th game, the um, Champions Cup final 2017. And obviously I'll um, I'll keep these boots for a final and probably get them framed up or something. And then um, when I do sort of put like a, a charity auction or something mm-hmm. together to raise some funds for some sort of, of the charities I'm patron of, then, you know, stuff like that, then it will be, will be put in auctions and stuff like that. Then. So it was great, actually. Yeah, it was a nice, nice touch for them, yeah. I, I don't know if uh, you, you heard Hugo Southwell just then saying that the atmosphere uh, was tremendous. Do you, do you, does that, uh, and not necessarily affect you, but do you notice the atmosphere? Yes, you do. Um, you notice it quite a bit before the game, when you go out to warm up and the stadium's starting to fill, sometimes in even at international matches, there's not really much of an atmosphere there. But um, in the semi-final in Clermont, out in Lyon with Clermont and Leinster, and the same in Murrayfield, so a lot of Clermont supporters travel, a lot of neutrals, a lot of few Saracens there as well, of course. And um, the atmosphere before the game, you could feel it when you were warming up, you know, the anticipation of, of the game and the atmosphere was was electric before and yeah and you and you do you know sometimes in the game you'll you're concentrating and focusing so much in the game. That, that's the biggest challenge of refereeing um a game like that is is your concentration and your focus for that for that 80 minutes mm-hmm. um and you're concentrating and focusing so much you come off the game sometimes and not only physically tired but you're mentally tired as well and, and in that 80 minutes you sometimes are not aware of of what the game was like. Was it a good game? Was it an average game? Was it a bad game? What the atmosphere? But there are times in the game then when what a decision you make and the crowd are all up, you know, whether they're in disagreement with it or there's a little stoppage after a fine break mm-hmm. or a fine try and then you sort of, you do feel and sense the atmosphere then. And it was strange yesterday. I did notice something about 15 minutes into the game I could hear the fields of Athen Rye being sung. Yeah, it was. Myself, I could hear that as well. <laughs> <laughs> the Irish, they, they, they're great supporters. They, they get everywhere they do fair play. But it was, the atmosphere was electric yesterday. It was a, it was a fitting occasion. The, the quality of the two teams, in all fairness, mm-hmm. the final itself, the occasion, the atmosphere, the supporters and everybody involved in it made it uh, 
a wonderful tournament and um, probably as good as as any final that I've been in, involved in for sure. Now we, we've we've always had an agreement, and this is is right to do so because contractually you're not allowed to comment on your own performance or the performance of your fellow existing referees, and we have to respect that, and we we do that gladly because we get your cooperation for for uh, you know for for an outstanding insights into other things. Can you just tell us? When, how do you go about um, deciding um, whether you whether you card people or whether you warn people or or whether you um, you know you just deal with it by way of yeah, penalty? Um, what, what are the sort of things you take into account? Well, the, the, the weirdest thing, first of all, um, a card, for example, let's we'll do the yellow card because a red card is for a sending off offence, yeah. and you know that that's quite clear what a red card is for. It's for nothing else but an act of sending off a foul play or serious foul play or, you know, two yellow cards, for example. So we talk about a yellow card, first of all. Um, it's used in three situations, really. It's used for foul play, you know, a high tackle or a, a spear tackle, something that warrants a yellow card but not a red card. Um, it's also used then for a professional foul or a repeated infringement. So let's say there's been... I don't know, there's no actual number to it. But let's say there's been four penalties in a space of 10 minutes by one side when they're defending in their own half and their own 22. Um, it could be a case of saying, right, OK, look, um, there's, you've given three penalties away here now. If there's another one, I think it's willful or professional. Somebody may go. You can also give it in the first minute. It doesn't have to be a repeated infringement. It doesn't have to be a warning. If the offence is cynical, then it's a yellow card. You can give that in, in, in the first minute. Also, as well, what you need to be aware of with the yellow card is, what people don't understand as well sometimes is, sometimes there is a reason why a player has committed an offence. He hasn't cynically or deliberately committed the offence. Let's say, for example, a ruck forms. And that player gets his timing split second wrong. The, the ruck is formed a split second and he gets his hand in afterwards. It's just a split-second timing. So that's not a willful offence. That's just a split-second timing. So in an instance like that, the referee may say, look, I understand exactly. You would, my decision, my opinion, my view was that the ruck had just beaten you. I'm going to penalise you. If the ruck is formed and two seconds later he comes in and scoops the ball back with his hand where he knows quite clearly a ruck is going to be formed, then the referee may just give a yellow card straight away without the warning. So... There are reasons when a referee gives a yellow card and a referee doesn't give a yellow card. You have to understand as well sometimes why you comment as an offence is committed because the player may have thought that he could play that ball and on another occasion, a second earlier, he may have well been able to play the ball. So the referee then, you use your management skills and your understanding and empathy and reading of the game and stuff as well then. But after saying that, let's say there's been... Uh, three or four split-second decisions, then you might say, look, boys, you know, enough's enough now. You know, there's, there's been four of these now. If it's a mistiming or not, the next one goes. So that then that becomes then more of you count the penalties up rather than actual the one-off cynical infringement, you know, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Hi, Nigel. It's Pete Winterbottom here. Hi, how are you? Very well, thanks. Very well. Um, just just one thing. Do you Would you have the discretion if... Um, you felt it was a, a deliberate um, knock forward um, to award a penalty try. Do you have the discretion then to, to 
do you have to, to do you have to yellow card the, the infringing player, or okay, can you me, say that the 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 penalty try would be enough? Let me t- let me let me sort of um, for me to I'll answer this in in what the law is first of all a penalty try for you and how the referee deals this. Um, a penalty try is um, if for an act of of foul play and that could be attack without the ball, deliberate knock on, high tackle, pulling a player back. If for an act of a, a willful offence or a foul play, a player has illegally prevented a try, which have probably been scored, not possibly scored or definitely scored, but in the view of the referee, a try would have probably been scored. That is then when the referee gives a penalty try. What the law says to you as well is that um, if you award a penalty try and you identify the individual, so let's say that the mall is going towards the try line and one player willfully collapsed that mall a couple of metres out and the referee's opinion was if that player had not collapsed that mall, then the team would have probably scored. The referee gives a penalty try and you have to then, within the laws of the game, you have to yellow card that player. Now, let's take the scrum situation, for example. Same thing with the scrum. Scrum is going backwards. Team uh, willfully collapses his penalty try. If the referee identifies the individual who took that scrum down, you yellow card that player. If the referee does not identify an individual, but all of the front row are at fault, so they all take it down, then you just give the penalty try. So then you wouldn't give a yellow card. You only give a yellow card when you identify the individual that has committed the offence that has prevented a probable try. So let's say you have... um, as I said, in, in, in that scrum situation, you have the all-eight going backwards and the front mm. row and the second row just go to the ground. You wouldn't then pick any one of those out and bid It'll them. be a prop, definitely, I tell you. It'll <laughs> definitely be a prop. Hooker, <laughs> 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 maybe the many say, Brian. No, no, definitely a prop. Just, I think what Wynn's getting at is, would you like the discretion... You don't you don't have it at the moment, but would you like the discretion to say, I want to give a penalty try, but I do not want to send this man to the bin because it's going to be a double penalty? And um, you, you don't really have that discretion. I know. I would you, really you would you think you, would you like think, that? Yeah, yeah. I don't really think you should have that discretion, Brian. I think okay. you have the discretion to give the penalty try or not. Um, you have the discretion if there is more than one person involved. You don't involve the individual, but but also as well, I can understand people saying there's no need to give a yellow. A card for a double whammy. You've given them five points and two mm-hmm. points, which is now seven points penalty try. You don't need to give them a yellow a player a yellow card as a double double whammy. So I can understand people's thoughts on that, but also as well, what you have to remember here is, let's remember as well who exactly has committed the act of foul play of an offence to prevent the probable to try. Mm-hmm. So why should the side that has scored? Why should they now then be disadvantaged, if you like, for it being 15-15? Because there is that element as well, I think, of a prevention is, is a huge part of rugby mm-hmm. where if a team, you know, thinks, oh, look, we'll give seven points away here uh, or we'll risk it and they may get a penalty yeah, yeah. time, they may not, uh, but we still have 15 players on the field. Mm-hmm. So if you have that in the, in the back of your mind as a team, you may then be more inclined to risk something Whereas okay. you think, oh, you know, I'm not going to risk this. If we give a penalty try as well and lose a man down, then we're going to be trouble for the next 10 minutes. So I think it as well as a prevention thing as well. So, mm-hmm. no, I, you know, I, I, I think the law is correct, what I think. I, I don't look as a double whammy. I think, well, listen, you've committed the offence. You've, you've caused this, so you need to take the, the consequences mm-hmm. for it. OK, Nigel, thank you very much, as usual. Um, speak to you uh, next week. Cheers, pleasure, Brian. Bye. Bye-bye.
Well, to complete our assessments and comments on the weekend's European action, pleased to say uh, we can now speak to a former teammate of ours, Simon Halliday, who is the European Professional Club Rugby Chairman. Good evening, Simon. Good evening. Uh, I'm here with Winters, who you know very well. We were... Hello, Winters. Hello, Simon. <laughs> we were we were chatting uh, earlier on about uh, you know the, uh, the 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 two ties. How people always say great adverts for the for the club game uh, and so on. That's the sort of language that's used. What? How well do you think they went uh, over for the neutral? Yeah. Look, I mean, it's. Um... You know, as far as the both tournaments were concerned, there's always a lot of uh, uncertainty because uh, you don't know who's going to be in the final stages. And, you know, we're predetermined to go to Edinburgh. So the fact that in both cups there was no Scottish team and no Irish team in the finals, you know, puts a little bit of pressure on as far as the neutrals are concerned and, and viewership and that sort of thing. But I think when you look at both matches, I mean, Stadford say you know, had a very mixed season, almost out of existence a number of weeks ago, suddenly, you know, saved from um, merging with Racing and, and bring out three big wins, and they brought their A game on Friday night, and that, that's for sure, and they won pretty convincingly against Gloucester. And the atmosphere was fantastic. Um, you know, both sets of, of uh, supporters gave it everything, and, and it was even better yesterday. I mean, that, what a game that was in intensity, and, yeah. um, you know, and, and again, Clermont support is absolutely sensational and, and made a huge atmosphere. So, yeah, I, I think, look, I mean, anyone who didn't think that was a great game of rugby yesterday, um, well, I, I thought the standard was, was at international level. I did. Um, Simon, it, it is very easy to say. Surely um, you could leave this later or um, you could see who gets into the final and then choose you know, a nearer venue. Is that, is that, is that, is that actually possible? It's very difficult because you, for both, the, I mean, it's, it's impossible for the semi-finals. I mean, it's a real problem for us because you don't know where you're going to go and you've only got a few weeks to prepare. And for the finals, it's so complicated to organise the venue and, and, and have the availability. And as you know, we've chosen Bilbao and Newcastle for the next two years, which are you know, different types of venues. Uh, but it's about branding and selling the whole weekend and, and creating an atmosphere for the city uh, regardless of who's going to be in the final, I think that's the right way to do it. But um, ultimately, that's what we're trying to create. I think the problem is in the semi-final, where if you get the wrong results, you could end up in all sorts of places, and we're, we're trying to fix that. Um, How? You, well, I think we need to, uh, first of all, have more time. So we've got to pitch into the global season debate. And we've also got to have much more flexibility around where we go. And I think every single member of our uh, of, of the EPCR, which is the clubs, the leagues all around Europe, have got to make all their grounds available at all times, and that hasn't always happened. So we've got a bit of work to do there. Um, is there any chat? Well, how how do you go about it? Is, is, is that a have you got any acts of compulsion with that? Have you got any power to insist on that, or is it just by persuasion and uh, goodwill? Well, it, I think it needs to be more than that, if I'm being blunt, because uh, you know the, the clubs. Um, and the unions uh, obviously run the tournament, you know, as a combination. Uh, we should have access to all of the, of the grounds. And I think if people are going to expect distributions from the revenue, uh, they need to play the game 100%. So uh, it's a discussion point because um, if the semi-finals hadn't gone the way they did, we could have ended up in some unusual places. Mm -hmm. So it's it's an agenda point to discuss for sure. 
Can you see Saracens appearing in many more of the uh, up-and-coming finals? Well, look, they're setting the standard, aren't they? I yeah. think um, uh, I would say Munster and Leinster are gonna, only going to get better. Um, they've, they've got a lot going for them. Both sides probably not quite ready this year. Uh, people thought the Irish provinces weren't ever going to come again, which was a ridiculous thing to say, um, and they've proved it this year. Um, uh, you know, Claremont's not an old side. I mean, you know, they just got... I don't think there was any disgrace in losing to that team, but I, I think it shows the other sides how much more they've got to um, develop. You know, a Wasps, for example, we'll see they've got to go up two or three levels. So I can see Saracen setting them up for the, certainly the next year, but there's a few sides that can threaten them along the way. Exeter, perhaps, will develop in that way. Um, you know, you can never write off too long, can you? Um, no, not with the, 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 the finance they've got. But I tell you, it does show to me that, uh, and it's the same in football, people say, oh, well, look, if you spend a lot of money, um, then you're going to be successful. Well, it's not quite like that for me. If you spend a lot of money, you've got a lot more chance of being successful. I understand that. But the difference when you get to the very top uh, and the very heights of things, you've still got to spend that money wisely because it's far too tempting. This is what Saracens got wrong for years and years, buying star names that didn't necessarily um, you know, warrant uh, the, the billing at that stage of their career or fitting with the other star names. And it seems to me that they've now got the club ethos, which is much more important. I and mean, that's what Toulon had irrespective of where they got their players from. And unless you get that, then you can spend all the money you want and you'll only be relatively successful. You could, I couldn't agree more. I think the, you look at some of the best club sides of recent years and that's been what the foundations have been built on. I and mean, when you look at, you know, people assume that, you know, the possible Lions starters like Cruz and Itoji and Vunipolas and George, they've not been bought in. They've all come through mm. the system. They cost nothing. You know, and well, be being paid plenty now, I'm sure, but they didn't get bought in. I think that's the change that's happened at mm. Saracens, and it's uh, and you know, Claremont's not that dissimilar. They're much more multinational, that's for sure. But you know, they've got both. But there's no fluke that both those teams are in the final. No fluke. What about the Welsh uh, provinces? Regions? Well, I think. I mean, I, I think there's there's no doubt that they're a few years behind. Um, everybody else, because it's only just been the last 12 months or, or so that you've got people like Gareth Davis coming into position mm. and they're trying to sort out Newport Gwent Dragons, Cardiff Blues. They're dealing with things now, and I think there's a real, you know, I'm very close to it because obviously I speak to them all the time because yeah. uh, we want it to happen, um, but it's going to take a little bit of time. You see signs coming in with the Scarlets, I do think that, who've actually perhaps overtaken Ospreys just right now. Um, but yeah, they're they're lagging behind, but um, you know we've got to let them put their own house in order. Because I was speaking to Ryan Jones, um, you know, who's an employee of the Welsh uh, Rugby Union, and saying, was there any prospect of them simply giving the owners the money back and, and you know taking that bullet and having a a proper you know franchise system that that worked very much in the way that the All Blacks do, uh, with it all challenged and 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 channeled into the success of the national team, because in Wales. Whilst you've always had this insane rivalry between East and West Wales, it is actually a corridor only of 160 miles, you know, from one side to the other, in which the you know the, all the rugby is played. And if if any uh, geographical 
uh, spread of clubs was was open to the sort of cooperation that you get from the All Black uh, and New Zealand franchises. It, it, it's, it's, it's in Wales. Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, it's it's not for me necessarily to you know to, to derive or, or push forward you know, other people's domestic um, yeah. positions. I mean, Italy's a similar thing. You know, you've got what do you do with Georgia, the remaining franchises in our third competition, etc. But I, I do think, obviously, when you look at what the Scots have done, um, you know, with with some success, certainly for Glasgow, um, you know, I think the Welsh within the Pro 12 format have got to work out what their best model is mm-hmm. and we're going to let them get on with it. But, I mean, obviously, we want a scenario where there's at least one Welsh region really pushing hard in the Champions Cup. We really do want that to happen. Um, and it's been a while. I, I know the sponsorship model was uh, gone from single title sponsor to generic to try and... Uh, to try and model the uh, and replicate the success of the uh, UEFA Champions League. How, yeah. how near are we to to getting the sponsors in in line f- with that sort of model? Yeah, I mean, I think I think if you take the take it in the rounds, which uh, you know, eighty percent of the revenue coming through the system is through TV broadcasting, mm-hmm. and twenty percent is commercial. Um, we're in the middle of TV renewals uh, discussions at the moment. And as you know, we've got Heineken, we've got Turkish Airlines and, and uh, Tiso, who are a very important partner for us um, alongside Gilbert. There are other discussions going on at, at this moment. I think what's happened in the semifinals and the finals um, has shown everybody the power of this competition. So I think that we're realistic because we need to make sure that we deliver really good quality. And then commercial partners who have had distractions such as the Rugby World Cup when we kicked off in year one. Um, have had a really good opportunity this year to look at who we are and what's developing. So it was never going to be instantaneous. Happily, the TV deals that were struck um, has given us some breathing space on that, and we've had time to develop the brand. And I think that's where I, I hope what's happened in the last few weeks will cause people to celebrate what's new and fresh about what we have now, rather than the inevitable looking back to saying, oh, well, you know, what it was like in Heineken Cup days. So, you know, we're still developing that, still got to get things right. But I think a lot of commercial sponsors are waking up to that fact now, so there's plenty of discussion going on. Well, that'll be all to the good. Uh, Simon, thanks very much. Um, we will see. Uh, yeah. But but the good, but the good fact is, the, the, the good thing is, if you can have quality finals like we've just had, then at least you've got the product. Thanks well, very much, mate. Exactly right. Thanks. Cheers. Cheers. All the best, bye. Time now to move north, um, not exclusively north, because rugby league is not just played in the north, as we all know, uh, in places like Toronto and uh, and, uh, and abroad. We'll be starting to speak to the Lee Centurions coach, former Hull FC and Hull KR player, Paul Cook. Hello, Paul. Good evening, Brian. Good evening. Uh, I'm here with Peter Winterbottom now. We're both the Yorkshire boys, so we, uh, we've watched a lot of rugby league. Um, and the Challenge Cup was on this weekend. Uh, start with t- today's... Uh, to today's game, the, the the outstanding feature, the outstanding tie was obviously uh, Warrington Wolves witness Vikings. It turned out 34-20, um, but uh, it was it, I, I I thought that that maybe was a bit harsh. Uh, maybe it was a bit harsh on witness. Yeah, following on from last week's performance from witness, where they got out to a lead against um, 
team in second in the, the Super League in Hull FC and, and got run down in the end. It, it probably went to form. Uh, again, witness very, very competitive for large parts of the game, but just run out of steam and, and as I said, probably went to form with, with Warrington, but a little bit harsh, as you say, with mm-hmm. the scoreline. And they've had that for the last few weeks now at Witness. They just can't get out of that that hole, having got themselves into a winning position and, and, and starting to lose from it, and then just can't dig themselves out. I tell you, I liked. Uh, he's only was he? He's only nineteen, I think. Johnson. Yeah, the young hooker. Yeah, very good player. Yeah, um, yeah, very very smart player. Tough. Uh, in in the middle of the field, obviously mixing it with the with the big boys in in Chris Hill and Ashton Sims, so yep. there's no hiding place for for the young man in there. It's a difficult position to play, but he handles it really well. We've got some very good young players, Alex Gerrard's another one at the club, uh, Matt Whiteley the, the second row. So yeah, they've got some they've got some quality young players at Witness. Wait, as a coach, where do you where do you draw the line between the sort of uh, little cheeky chappy, the, the 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 little bit of niggle and the edge which you need? And you know the our own provocateur and the the ill-disciplined uh, player who, who steps over. Where, where, which? How do you decide? How do you decide what's uh, what's acceptable? Well, we've just we've only just brought in a policy last week where we've got a little committee ourselves at the club at Lee yeah. where we'll, we'll adjudicate as a five-man committee on penalties and whether they warrant uh, a punishment of a. A what bike or a rowing session or a, a oh, ski right. egg session. So, right. so some of the more real disciplined players are, are, are wanting to know whether they can pay a financial fine in terms of that rather mm-hmm. than do the do the physical punishment. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, we listen, you can't allow that. Can you can't allow players to buy the way out? They're, no, they're not buying the way out. Don't worry about. <laughs> they'll, they'll be doing the punishment, and, and and should we see fit, if they want to appeal it, we'll double the punishment. So uh, I don't think there'll be too many appeals from the boys that get found guilty. But listen, there's obviously some penalties in games where the referees get it wrong, and there's some yeah. things to adjudicate on. Uh, there's ones where listen, the, the contact is around the ball and it slides up, which. Is unfortunate, but part of a collision sport in in rugby league. So, yeah, we'll adjudicate as the five man panel. We've got uh, two of the coaching staff and two captains, the vice captain uh, and the captain, and, and then a winger who's near enough a paid touch judge. So um, he's he's pretty unbiased <laughs> in his opinion. Uh, so yeah, we listen. We we draw the line at when it's costing the team. It's yeah. as simple as that. And if people continually cost us. Uh, penalties and energy and, and ultimately points and points on the, the league ladder, then they'll be dealt with. Uh, well, I watched with interest my uh, hometown, uh, who used to be the Thrumallers, um, and that's where I first uh, watched them. Yeah. The Shame, and you're down at Shea, Halifax. Uh, in the end, uh, Featherstone were just a bit too powerful for them, I think, uh, especially uh, second row-wise. Uh, their ball carriers took them a, a long way on the, after the first contact. Can you... Uh, see, Featherstone, they've now got uh, the Rhinos away, which is not an easy draw. Um, can you see them progressing? It'll be a miracle if they do against Leeds. Yep. It will. Um, listen, when you're a part-time team against a full-time team, it's difficult, very difficult. Uh, obviously, these boys at, at Halifax and Featherstone, for, for me on Thursday night, gave a real show of, of what the Championship's all about and what just how committed part-time players are. I thought it was a wonderful game of, of rugby league on Thursday night and a, a wonderful advertisement for the lower league. And Featherstone did just just deserve to go into the hat for the next round. It would be, be a minor miracle if John Sharp's players can get up to the Leeds game and get a result. But, um, you know, you never say never. Anything can go in, a, in, a, in any game of sport. So the underdog cannon often does win. 
but it'll be a, as I said, it'll be a man of miracle for me if they, they get a result at Leeds. Hi, Paul. Pete Winterbottom here. Um, yeah, talking about Leeds Rhinos, great to see them uh, finding a bit of form, and they were one of the sort of high-scoring sides in the uh, in the in the round. Uh, others were um, well, Hull FC against Catalan Dragons, but the one that stood out for me was Castleford Tigers against St Helens. Mm-hmm. Now, what on earth has happened to St Helens? Yeah, they're very inconsistent. But, but listen, Castleford Tigers can do that to you this year. Uh, I'm not. I'm not sure how many points they're averaging at home, but it wouldn't be far short of fifty in every game that they've played. I think the Wallop Leeds ran or sixty-six. Yeah, in, we, early we, on we, in we the season. Listen, <laughs> we, we went there in round one and we conceded 48 and it doesn't look like too bad a result when you look at the rest of them. Um, so listen, Castleford have got that in them this year. Um, Saints are, are obviously waiting on the new coach coming in this week uh, who finishes his commitments over in the NRL uh, and he comes over and Listen, they look, they're they just an, an inconsistent team. The, the, you know, they can win one week, then they get walloped the week after, and then all of a sudden, you know, they the beat a team which there's no right to beat. So um, they're still scratching around for some form as well, and, and the new coach will, will obviously bring his ideas and help that. But uh, take nothing away from Castleford. They are the entertainers of the, the Super League in 2017 and fully deserve their place, and they'll be looking to, to make a, a major assault on probably all three trophies. Can you can you see them doing that seriously? What what would worry me is that they've not been in them big games at the end of the season so often. Uh, mm-hmm. The top four and uh, grand final playoffs and Challenge Cup playoffs. I know they've been in the Challenge Cup final over the last couple of years, but they've not won anything. Uh, and to go from contenders or pretenders to winners is a difficult thing. So mm-hmm. it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. They're obviously a very confident bunch. That, Stayed relatively fit in the opening half of the Super League season. So, you know, when a little bit of adversity hits, that'll be when Daryl Powell and his players are tested. But, yeah, they can. I would say they can make an assault on it. The, the only the only sort of, you know, the only sort of difficulty with it would be whether they can mentally handle them big games when, when the end of the season comes. When so many other teams like your Wiggins and your Warringtons, your Leeds, Hull FC who became winners in 2016, they've handled that pressure. What about injuries to players like Rangi Chase? Are they are they are they equipped to to absorb those? Because I mean, at some point, unless they're extraordinarily lucky, they're bound to get them, them, a few of them. Yeah, and this is why I say that. I mean, they lost Luke Gale in a game um, uh, uh, just a few weeks ago at Hull FC, and um, Luke Gale went off with an injury, and Hull FC had a player sent off because of the incident. And, mm-hmm. For tw- for, you know, with 12 men, Hull FC managed to get a result against them. And it was 18-0 while Luke Gill was on the field. And when Castleford hit that adversity with key with injuries to key players, you know, how well equipped are they to handle that? Now, they trained all week, a couple of weeks after when they played Huddersfield with uh, Hooker Paul McShane in the halves. And Rangie Chase went off injured again, the only recognised half. And they managed to scrape a result then, which was a big result for them mm-hmm. at Huddersfield. Because for large parts of that game, the, the, you know, the was second best to Huddersfield. So mm-hmm. the can scrape games, as I said, it'll be interesting when the big games come and when there's a little bit of adversity in them big games and how the rest of the team and players handle that. Well, the, the way the quarterfinal draws come out, um, as you've got... You, I don't know if, if you'd call them classic local derbies, but Warrington and Wigan, fairly, you know, they're fairly close uh, um, geographically. And and Hull and Castleford, um, similar. 
Uh, how much does does that sort of factor put uh, the result uh, into a bit more doubt? Well, the, the, the home drawing the quarterfinal is the biggest draw. Um, obviously, the semi-finals are played at a neutral ground, so this is the last chance to play a big team at home. Uh-huh. So when you're drawn at home in a quarterfinal, it's a blessing. Uh, you get your home surroundings. So psychologically, I think it's really important. Uh, when when I was very fortunate enough to win the cup, we got a home draw in the quarterfinals, and then we played the red hot favourites St Ellen's at a neutral ground. Now, you know, if you can play St Ellen's, the red hot favourites at home, and then go to a, a semi final when when it's the toss of a coin, then that that'd be better. But obviously, we we managed the home draw quarterfinals, then played St Ellen's, and not at St Helens at neutral ground. So. Yeah, I think it's really important the draw in the quarterfinal. Uh, I think home draw is vital, uh, and it gives you a small psychological edge. So, well, bearing in mind you've got Warrington, Wigan, Leeds, Featherstone, Salford, Wakefield, Hull, Castleford. Which of the sides have got most chance of pulling a surprise away win? Well, I think Castleford. I think you'd say that the you know first versus second in Super League at the minute currently. Uh, Castleford going away to Hull. Um, obviously, Wigan have won at Warrington a, a number of times over the years. It, you know, a really big one last year at the end of the season. So, yeah, there's a couple of big ones there. Wakefield are very, very capable of going to Salford and winning. But again, a really good draw for Salford. And as I said, it'll be a, a miracle for me if, if Featherstone can go to Leeds and win. It'll be interesting how many dual registration or loan players Leeds allow Featherstone to play. Uh, well, you've got uh, Salford, I think, uh, next up, haven't you, on Sunday, next Yeah, Sunday? Magic, yeah, absolutely, Magic Weekend. Magic weekend. Yeah, it's a big big bonanza, isn't it, this weekend for yeah. everybody. So, looking forward to getting up to uh, to Newcastle on Saturday. We spend the night overnight, maybe catch a couple of the later games on the Saturday night um, at the stadium. And then, you know, we gear up for what is a massive game for us against Salford. Yeah. How special is the atmosphere up there now? now that It seems to be set that Newcastle is going to be that for a while, I think. It, now I I know I know what it's like to go out in Newcastle after games. What do, well, and it's fairly entertaining. Yeah. Um, how much has that sort of you know the party atmosphere got to do with the uh, success of the weekend? Do you think? Well, for for the players, it's it's easy to be caught up in it. Uh, as a player, I played at, at the one in Cardiff and one up in Edinburgh. Yeah. Um, so it's easy to be caught up in that party atmosphere and forget there's a, yeah. a two co- two competition Super League points yeah. up for grabs. Um, you know, and, and, and often I think shocks do happen at Magic mm-hmm. Weekend because of it. Mm-hmm. You know, the crowd are very partisan. It's a yeah. it's a weekend for everybody with everybody buying tickets for both days, and yep. there's n- numerous shirts in the crowd, whereas there's just u- usually home and away fans for. for for all to play games so yeah. it's easy to be caught up in it um, for the players and, and, and there's obviously a job to do and that's part of the, the, that mental side of the game that we've got to prepare for this week but um, listen I think there'll be plenty of sore heads Sunday morning from Saturday night and Monday morning from Sunday night whether that's players or supporters Fair enough well enjoy yourself don't, don't get arrested or anything like that okay No absolutely not them days are gone Cheers Thanks. <laughs> Cheers Brian Thank you, Bye 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 from Super um, League to Super Rugby, and we can now speak to uh, a regular contributor, always entertaining, uh, Alex Brown, the Australian uh, journalist. Alex, are you there? I am, Brian, and lovely to talk to you. Good yeah, to hear you. Good, mate. Um, now, uh, well, what can you say? The uh, Western Force won a game. 
Well, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a time for a celebration, really. We yes. should all have a party. Yeah. Or yeah. join them in Salford for the party because, um, I mean, Australian rugby in terms of super rugby is absolutely dire at the moment. Just really quickly, our teams, just remember it's an 18-team competition yep. and our five teams are 10th, 12th, 14th, 15th and 17th. I know. And it's so incredible that Force have won three out of 10, Brian, three out of mm-hmm. 10, but they can still make the semifinals with four rounds left. Because yeah. the, the the leading team of the Brumbies who won also won three out of ten, so mm-hmm. it's really quite quite astonishing that the, the poor state of Australian Super Rugby at the moment. Well, we've we, we've discussed this long and and hard. Um, I mean, the, the, actually, the, the 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 Rebels and the Reds game is quite entertaining. Uh, yeah, it was and. Uh, Oh, given, given and great to see some, yeah, great to see Samu Karevi doing so well because yeah. he's a really talented young player. He's also, I mean, he's a bit of a wild, wild guy when he first came into the team, a bit up and down, very inconsistent. But he's really worked under Nick Styles, and he's also taken on a leadership role, which is mm-hmm. really exciting. So I really hope that uh, the national coach Michael Checker will will give him a, a key place in the Wallaby lineup. And you know, Kurtley Beale and Samu Karevi at national level could be good for the Wallabies. Uh, just moving, uh, well, moving continents. I, uh, mm. the, the result, probably the weekend, I think, uh, the Kings beating the Sharks. Yeah, well, this is the really, really interesting thing. And I think it shows the overall state of, uh, I mean, both South Africa and Australia are in the same point that they've been told that they have to cut teams for next year. Whereas Australian rugby has gone into this absolute doom and gloom and despair, despairing spiral. Uh, the South African rugby teams have certainly taken up the challenge, and the Kings have been great now. I mean, the Kings, they beat the Waratahs, of course, in Sydney, which is a massive result for them. Now they've beaten the Sharks, and even though they've been told they're being axed and they've got an absolute no-name lineup, they're playing some really good rugby and winning some great games. So, And I think, Brian, this is the key. This is... You know, World Rugby, a number of years they, they a number of years ago, they instituted a number of changes because they wanted the game played in a more attractive fashion. And that has been something that's been followed through by Sansa in Southern Hemisphere through rugby. So the referees are always going to reward the teams that play positive rugby. Mm-hmm. The New Zealand teams have recognised that, so they play positive rugby and they end up winning their games. Australian teams are ultra-defensive, they do not keep the ball in hand. They kick it away all the time, and their negative style of rugby does not get rewarded by the referees. Well, Alex, um, the uh, New Zealand sides are doing particularly well, but there's one mm, that is the absolutely. standout side, and that's the Crusaders. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, can anyone touch them? Listen, it was a great win for them over the Hurricanes because if you look at that back line especially, it's, mm. they, they had some key injuries. Yeah. And the back line does not look an all-star back line, whereas you look at the Canes, you know, it's Bowden Barrett, it's Julian Savia. There's some, there's some really great players. There's TJ Perinara. But was what was so impressive about the Crusaders is they just blew them off the park up front. It's really and worrying, it really, actually. It's yeah. really worrying. Oh. <laughs> it certainly is, Brian, with the, with the live yeah. talk. Yeah. Listen, you've got a guy called Maro Otoje who's going to do okay down there. And also, yeah. I think Courtney Laws is going to be pretty important in that series. But, you know, they, they're very, very strong. They're very, very well drilled, the Crusaders. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I think 
it's it's going to come down to probably the Crusaders, the Chiefs, the Hurricanes, and the Highlanders. And if mm-hmm. if and also the Lions, you cannot rule out the Lions from South Africa. What yep. Johan Ackerman has done there in Joburg is is nothing short of amazing. And they keep playing some really good rugby, and they're number two on the table overall. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, I don't know when you get down to the semi final. Remember also we have this weird thing where we have a break for the whole of the Lions series, so it's yep. like a four week break or five week break, and then we all come back. So a lot of it depends on how the teams come back together after that. And, I mean, the Crusaders, you've got to say, yes, they've won 11 out of 11. They deserve to be favourites at the moment. But I wouldn't still that say that guarantees they're going to win the, win the tournament. Yeah, no, I, I, think, mean, I think the Lions in South Africa would be, could be very difficult to beat. I mean, Johan Ackerman has done a fantastic yeah. job. And it's a big loss yeah. uh, for them that he's going to, to Gloucester next year. Yeah, and they've only lost they've only lost one game, so they only sit four points behind the Crusaders. And remember, they've got a much easier run in because they don't have to play um, the New Zealanders teams as much as the New Zealanders do. So, you know, if the Crusaders drop a game, the Lions if the Lions can finish top, you would say that if the Crusaders have to go there to play the Lions in the final, the Lions would win. Mm. So that that home advantage for Super Rugby is so 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 crucial. And the Lions lost last year because they had to play the final in New Zealand. But maybe this time, if they're playing the final in Joburg, maybe just maybe they win it. Alex, we were discussing earlier the necessity, seemingly, from World Rugby to have the World Cup draw so early on the basis that it helps teams prepare. Notwithstanding the fact that people, our listeners, have pointed out that it doesn't help the Tier 2 teams who don't even know they're going to be there yet, uh, mm. prepare. What, how has it gone down uh, in Australia with the Australian draw? Uh, well, listen, I guess everybody's just watching it with a little bit. I mean, we, we're very happy. Um, it's a very good draw, I think, for Australia because Australia have got that strangely odd record against Wales where, we, where <laughs> Wales don't seem to be able to beat us, even though they often have a better team and often deserve to win. They, they seem to find a way to lose against us. And then, of course, Georgia. So we're very, very happy. I mean, if we'd, <laughs> we'd say, got England's draw of France and Argentina, I think we'd be sitting there very, very worried at whether we'd actually make the quarters. So it was a good draw for us. But, I mean, it's past everybody. I mean, we down here we were just looking at the photos of the of the Saki barrel breaking ceremony with uh, <laughs> Bill Beaumont and Pichot hitting mallets at each other, which we thought was completely bizarre. So it's more been a comedy relief than anything else down here. And as you say, I mean, two years out picking the pools, it, it, it is a little bit odd, and I don't know why World Rugby continues to do it. What about the uh, residency change rule change? How's that gone down to five? It's gone up to five Listen, years. Yeah, listen, we we certainly are happy with that because it doesn't make it doesn't seem to help the Wallabies a lot, but boy, it helps the All Blacks. And the fact that players like say Wasaki Naholo uh, may not, you know, would be playing for Fiji rather than New Zealand, it just means for these players, it means that they've got to wait another. They break through, say, into Super Rugby, or they break break through into Provincial Rugby, and they've got to wait another three or four mm-hmm. years to play for the All Blacks rather than one or two. It really, and you know, Samoa or Fiji, or especially Tonga at the moment, Tongan rugby is, is going through a real dip at the moment. Mm-hmm. If they can have these players and, and offer the, the possibility of a World Cup to these players in 2019, and where they, where they have to wait another four years and may not even make the All Blacks, I think it's, it's a really positive thing. So listen, I think it's a, it's a good change, and I really hope what it means is that we see those Fiji, Samoa and Tonga get stronger and, of course, being an Australian, the All Blacks get weaker. <laughs> yeah, well, we all we all want that. So that you're not you're not we alone in that one. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Alex, uh, great as usual. Thank you very very much. That's a pleasure, Brian. And take care. I eh? great to hear from you. Thank you. Time now for our team behind the team feature. 
in association with QBE Business Insurance, principal partner of the British and Irish Lions, supporting the team behind the team. So as we build up to the British and Irish Lions tour to New Zealand, we're going to be bringing you the full story of those who make the tour possible, the team behind the team. And this is supported by our sponsors, QBE Business Insurance. This week, we'll be hearing from Paul Stridgen, Head of Strength and Conditioning. And I began by asking how the preparations were going for this year's tour. I got the call from Warren asking me would I like to go. And obviously, um, I was delighted to get that third Lions tour for me. And we started we started planning then uh, quite informally from 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 then on. I mean Warren and the rest of the uh, the head of the ops team had had been on uh, a couple of recce's by then. Mm-hmm. I think they'd been on about six or seven. Um, and then we went in early January just to finalise the hotels and the gyms and everything that we were going to use, all the training grounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, so pl- we've been we've been in detail planning for some good good six months now. Um, getting talking to Warren about the way we want to play, talking about the way we wanted the squad and who could play the, t- the game and the type of rugby that we wanted, mm-hmm. we felt that could go and win in New Zealand. Because you've obviously, uh, on the one hand, you, you can say, well, we want this type of player, but you don't know, or you, you didn't know until last week, uh, that this, each of these individuals were going to be in the squad, I presume. So how individually can you prepare, bearing in mind a lot of these players have their own uh, season-long things which they've been developing with their own uh, club coaches and so on. Um, how how does that all fit together? Well, so we just we just um, did a lot of detailed planning on the on the two training camps. So one in the Vale, um, the first one in Wales, and then mm-hmm. one in Ireland. That's before we depart. And then how we wanted to shape the weeks so that so that we get the best of the best out of um, out of everyone. Obviously, we've got games and midweek games and games at the end of the week. So we wanted to make sure that. Everyone got enough recovery and everyone got enough training time to perform at the best at the, uh, in those games. Mm-hmm. And obviously, as soon as we started to know a bit of a squad, then we started looking at players individually. And then, as soon as we got the squad, the squad was announced. Um, uh, we planned to meet all the S and C coaches of the unions, and then we we we've sent detailed in, information packs to the clubs, so telling them what we're going to do, and then getting as much information off the clubs because they're the guys who are with them day mm-hmm. in day out on GPS markers, how the players cope with load, any lifts that they do, anything they need individually so that well, yeah. we can prepare an individualised programme um, with a bit of a gen- genericness, for want of a better word, for the team so that mm-hmm. we can get the best out of the indi- individual and the team on a high performance level. Do you, uh, what part of uh, do you, you play developing the culture of teamwork within the squad, in, in, you know, wider with the management team and, and the players? Yeah, so... so as I, one of our main challenges, and it always is in the Lions Tour, we get some guys, we get guys, some guys are going to arrive, the, for, who play in the finals, they're going to arrive the day yes. before we leave for tour. So you know yourself about a successful tour and a successful team has a good, strong culture, a good sense of teamwork. The boys on all want to win for each other and win for the coaches. So the main challenge for us on, on the Lions Tour is getting the players to that point as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. So we will have the boys rooming together. The boys will be in big groups in the gym. So a lot of club club teams have smaller groups, like ten in the gym. But for us, we'll just have a forwards and back split, and we'll get the clubs in as big groups as, as possible, mm-hmm. so they're all working together, chatting to people they don't normally chat to. And we've got to try and um, speed that process of the team gelling for gelling and wanting to play for each other. So the faster we can get there, 
then the, the the better we're going to perform in games. So all all of Warren's staff, he's got a lot of trust in, and there's a lot of um, subordination. So he, he trusts everyone to do the job. Um, there's a lot of continuation of staff as well. So we've, we've got a lot of people who've been on two, three Lions tours, a lot of people from the last Lions tour who've worked together and know each other well. We'll have a bit of a laugh as well. So that's a, that's a, that's a given with Warren and, and the staff that we've selected. And hopefully we'll speed up that process. By the time we get to that first, second, third game, then, then the boys seem to know each other well and we get that team spirit. Mm-hmm. How important is it to have the lines of communication uh, clear when you're managing challenges like rehab of of players who you know invariably are going to get uh, get knocked on tour. Everything's a, a multifaceted faceted approach. Um, the, the the medical team is tremendously experienced. Um, it's a great medical team. On my team, I've got Phil Morrow from Saracens, oh, yeah. who's worked with Ulster and Ireland, who's been very successful. He's still been successful now. I've got a lot of respect for. We've got Brian Cuniff, mm. who's worked with the Olympic team, so he's our sports scientist. He was on the last tour, so we've got we've got the. We've got the expertise of him and the experience of how, how we won the last test series. And then we've got a, a young kid from, from Wales, John Ashby, who was at WAS with me. Mm-hmm. And then he's done 12 years at Wales. He'll, he'll be looking after the rehabbers. Um, he'll be looking after the nutrition, the recovery. And he's got a lot of trust from the players. I mean, all, 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 the, all the people in the medical and SSC team, there's no egos. Everybody just wants everyone to mm-hmm. win. And um, the approach for, an, in, for, a rehab, for a player that needs rehab... We'll always have a meeting. We'll have a meeting every morning, and we'll talk about the players individually, what he needs, and that's and that that also includes the rugby coaches as well. Warren has a lot of trust in all his staff, so he will leave us to to do what we feel for that player. Um, this isn't a question; this is more of a comment. I mean, I've been tremendously impressed by the way in which strength conditioning coaches and, uh, in conjunction with the medical staff, are now able to say. Um, you know, this is a two or three day uh, injury. This is a, a six or seven day tear, and so on. And that specificity is something which must be invaluable in timing the uh, the the the, uh, the recovery of the players. Yeah, of course, of course. I mean, the coaches need to plan, need to plan for games, especially with two games a week. So the coach can, the more information we can give to the coach, and and this includes using a lot of sports science as well. I don't. We don't live or die by sports science. Obviously, coaching and mm-hmm. intuition has a massive, a massive input into it. But if we can, we know how how fast a player needs to run before he's back to full fitness. Mm-hmm. We know the amount of volume he needs to do before he can get back into a rugby week and 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 work on rugby rugby skills and do the detail required to get him ready mm-hmm. for the game. So the game's moved forward that much in the last five, ten years that we're able to 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 be more um more realistic on coach with coaches on. Uh, on return to play times, mm-hmm. and, and and they can select the team better. And this was evident also in um, in Australia in the last tour because you remember we had quite a few injured players. I do. Um, and it was a it was a big big task for the medical team and SNC, most of the medical team really, and they worked hard to get the players back. And then in, in that last week, we ended up selecting from nearly a full full squad. I mean, two weeks before the end, we thought the, we thought it was over. I mean, Tommy Ball was injured. Remember, yeah. hurt his hand. Yeah. We had a lot of small injuries like that. And then by the time the last week came around, we had a virtual full squad to select from, which meant that the third test, we, could, we, we had a good chance of winning. Yeah. Uh, you've spoken about the need for players to be 10% fitter than the, uh, than the last Lions tour. When, what, what knowledge have you acquired in the, 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 from the past two or two that's going to help you achieve this? And how are you going to measure that? Well, so, so what, it wasn't me actually saying 10%. <laughs> you, know, you know how it goes. Yes. And what we said was, we said that, we said that because we played New Zealand in Wales, 
and um, we've got data from other countries playing New Zealand, yeah. Ireland playing New Zealand, and we know that um, we know that in pockets of the games the intensity required. So we can look at the games as a whole, and we know that the players have to be between 90 and 100 metres a minute in the backs for the for the full game mm-hmm. when they're against New Zealand, and that includes a lot of big contacts as well. We know that in pockets of the game it might be 180, 200 metres a minute for a minute or a minute and a half. Yep. We know from looking at old game data where the players need to be, and I said I, I feel that the players will be, probably need to do 10% more running in the intense phases yep. than what we did against Australia. That was that was what I was. It was a slight misquote, but um, so we, what we're going to do is we're going to we're going to split them games down that we know we've got dates against New Zealand, yep. and then we're going to tell the boys we're going to show them where they need to be, and then with Warren we always like training short and intense, so. The sessions won't be too long. We won't be training for much more than an hour ever, but they'll be intense, and we'll yep. be training above game intensity. So that when we come back down to to test match them, then the boys are ready to go, and 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 we're not we're not getting that shock as you do often when if you've been playing in the Premiership in October, and then and then you play in New Zealand in a November international, and you, and it's as you know yourself, it, it's a shock mm. coming to international rugby from club rugby. Mm-hmm. So we want to we want to use them five games against them five um, Super Fourteen franchises to get up there because we know there'll be a lot of running in them games the games will be intense mm-hmm. and we feel that that's great although it's, it's going to be a tough tour and it's a big challenge for us we also feel there's a positive from that that we'll be match ready we'll be ready to match the intensity of the All Blacks when it, when it comes to Test 1 uh, Just a last uh, question if you, if you don't mind the question of leadership is always important uh, micro and macro leadership when you've got your particular message we're a very intense touring experience do you look for um, leaders within groups, or are you re- or you're more tending towards individual responsibility anyway? Well, so obviously because it's Alliance Tour, you know yourself, and even involved in groups like that, from you always get everyone. Everyone switches on a tiny bit more when they come to an international level in the week. That's just natural. When when people come on Alliance Tours, they all seem to switch on a bit more, mm-hmm. and everybody everybody is is ready to go, but. Yeah, we, we we do that quite often. We do that in clubs and we do that in, in the Lions Tour. We will we will chat to individuals who will help us disseminate the information mm-hmm. informally. So, yeah, Alan Wynne Jones is obviously Captain Sam Warburton, Owen Farrell from England. People who we know work well and, and other people look up towards them. This is especially important for the new players coming into the Lions group mm-hmm. because they, they don't know what a Lions, test, a Lions, a Lions um, Tour requires. They don't know how to approach it because it, it is unique. So we will talk to them senior players and they will help us disseminate that information by words, but also by their actions as they lead by lead 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 by example. People will follow. Um, so we, we'll we'll definitely be doing that. Yeah. Thanks to Paul Sturgeon for sharing sharing his story and how he fits into the team behind the team. And thanks also to QB Business Insurance, who support this podcast and the team behind the team, the British and Irish Lions. QBE are about building the strongest partnerships, one team and collaboration across multiple countries to give businesses the confidence to achieve their ambitions. To finish off with uh, Peter, uh, the playoffs are coming up. It's another two weekends, the playoffs are obviously the final, in which players can get injured <laughs> before they go on the Lions tour. So they can't, but they can't afford to, to have any uh, doubts about their commitment in games, otherwise they will get injured. How do you see the the playoffs going? First, let's take uh, the uh, the runners up, uh, Sandy Park, Exeter, Saris. What do you think is going to happen there? 
Well, I mean, that could really be the the main game of of, of the whole playoffs and the finals. I mean, yeah. um, you know, it could be the one that uh, that's, that that well that Sarri slip up. I mean, it's a, an incredibly hard place to go and play. They've got a an, a, an incredibly organised team under Rob Baxter, mm-hmm. um, you know, with with talent. But but they sort of they sort of play a little bit in the Saracens' mould in that they're a very difficult side to beat at times, mm-hmm. and they're very organised side. And I think that's going to be a really great, uh, great fixture. And I, I wouldn't call, I wouldn't like to call it now. No, I, I, I think uh, you sitting on the fence is, is no more than any sensible person would. And I just wonder, it, it is really difficult, no matter what you say about discipline and self motivation. It's obvious that Saracens have got that and have got that sorted uh, in many respects. But when you've just won back-to-back European competitions and you've had a celebration, as they deserve to have, uh, they will get back down to work. But it is it is almost impossible to predict how individuals will prepare for the weekend. And it is actually possible to believe that you are doing everything you can to approach a game professionally and give the best, and then only realise later that actually your mind wasn't 100%, it was just a little bit off. Uh, And whether that happens to two or three Saracens players, if it doesn't and they go through in the same imperious fashion, you've got to say that is absolutely tremendous. But there is a possibility of that happening. Absolutely. I I, I mean, I think that's the big danger for Saracens. I mean, you know, when you've got so many Lions, especially the forwards, um, that... They're, they're looking towards Alliance Tour as well as the next two games and hopefully uh, uh, the playoff semis and then the final. Um, you know, but, but there's no doubt that, that, uh, that they'll be looking, you know, they're on that, uh, as far as they're, they're on that plane to New Zealand mm-hmm. and they know they're going to have to perform out there. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, and as I say, they've just won the, the second uh, European Cup on, on the trot. And, and yeah, it, it's, uh, it doesn't take much. It's, you know, it's only a... A, a small percentage of, of drop off of intensity will make a big mm. difference. You know, you know these these games are won and lost by small yeah. margins, and that could be a margin. And, and certainly Exeter will be will be flying. They'll be yeah. right up for it. And the other one, uh, Wasps and Leicester. I I previously have said uh, of all the sides, actually, Wasps probably wouldn't have wanted Leicester because this is now a Midlands derby. Uh, you know, it didn't used to be. You know, but they yeah. are in Coventry. They're not far away. You know, uh, and and Leicester will have a significant number of supporters there, whereas they m- would not necessarily have had as many, you know, had they been playing down at Allianz Park or or certainly down at Sandy Park. Uh, they will get them to the Rico. And, um, well, let's, well yeah, what, how I mean, do you think that's going to turn I mean, out? Well, look, you know, I mean, it looks like both sides, sides have just got their mojo back. I mean, yep. Wasps had, uh, you know, a disastrous game for them at uh, Harlequins. Um, and then uh, came back and um, and walloped Saracens, albeit a sort of you know, a, a, a weaker Saracens side than than took the final uh, at the weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Leicester, I mean, since uh, Matt Connors um, sort of come back to them, um, have seemed to find some sort of direction. And I think he's mm-hmm. simplified things. He's given them some real targets to go for, and and they have got. Good players. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I I would like to see Wasps come through because I think the style of rugby that they've played this season has been mm-hmm. absolutely outstanding, and they've been, in my view, the most entertaining side. Um, they've got such talent, um, you know, and, and well across the board, mm-hmm. um, you know, and they've got a few bit guys like 
Joe Launchbury, who have got a point to prove. Yeah, and, and even Haskell. Well, and Haskell, yes. Although yep. I think, I, in fairness, I think I don't think Haskell had as as, a, as good a Six Nations as as uh, Launchbury. I mean, no, Launchbury I has fair. played yeah. bloody well. This, sorry, yeah, but... I swear, <laughs> has, has played really well this year. And um, you know, and he's uh, you know he's probably um, probably right to have a, a yeah. bit of a gripe. And don't worry, Wince. Uh, thanks very much. Um, yeah, at least you didn't do a Cesc Fabregas. It could have been worse. <laughs> uh, that's the end uh, of the show this week. You've been listening to. Brian Moore's full contact in association with The Telegraph and QBE Business Insurance. Many thanks to my co-host Peter Winterbuff for joining me in the studio this week and as always to our wonderful producer Abby Patterson. Next week my co-host will be the former Lion the always entertaining Rob Henderson. Remember, you can get in contact with us throughout the week via the hashtag full contact and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and to leave us a review. Good night.